Welcome back to the Lighthouse Conversations, a show featuring entrepreneurs, tastemakers from the world of art, culture, tech, and of course, food. I'm your host, Hashem Montasser. This episode is quite special. It's made up of a few firsts. My guest today is the show's first ever return guest, a personal friend of mine and a close friend of the Lighthouse. This is also the first time I've recorded with her in person. Our last episode was done over Zoom, Dubai to London, during the lockdown. And last but certainly not least, this is the first episode recorded in our beautiful library bar at Yasbe Waterfront in Abu Dhabi, the Lighthouse's newest location, which opened in January of this year. Joining me on the show today is Nadia Wasif. As a businesswoman, she's the co-founder of Duane, one of Egypt's most successful and popular bookstores slash cafes. As an author, she has published Chronicles of a Cairo Bookseller, her first book, which was released last year and tells a personal story that's in many ways a love letter to Cairo. The book is of course available at all four Lighthouse locations in Dubai and Abu Dhabi, as well as online in all the usual spots. The last time Nadia was on the show, it was prior to her book's launch, and we focus on her creative process. Feel free to go back to our archives and listen to the first episode. This time around, we discussed the book's arc, the choices she made as a writer when it came to structure and language, and we also asked her if a second book is in the making. Nadia, I cannot tell you how excited I am to be doing this, <laughs> and I'm so happy to have you here. What brings you to the UE? Let's start with that. No, it's amazing to be here, and as you know, I'm a very big fan of The Lighthouse, and Thank I'm you. a very big fan of you Thank and you. of speaking to you. So as am I. This is wonderful, and Thank lunch you. was fabulous. So yeah. <laughs> um, Thank you. So what brings me to the UAE is the Shara Booksellers Conference, which for the first time brought together about 200 booksellers from all over the world. And what I found especially um, moving and very um, timely for all of us actually, was that even though we're all divided by geography, so I met booksellers from Nigeria, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, um, Ghana, South Africa, India, I mean, you name it, basically, Georgia. So we're all very much divided by geography, but united by the stories and the similarities and the challenges that we share. And this, I thought, was rather amazing because when I was listening to, you know, booksellers talking about how they partner up with community centers, how they've decided in, you know, one, one um, bookstore in India, Walking Books, has just, they have a bus and they've driven 37,000 kilometers and they've just kept on going to take books to different villages and communities. Is that a thirst for knowledge or is it the actual desire to touch, feel and consume books? Well, look, I think it's different things to different people. One lady was talking about the fact that some children had never been inside a bookstore before. And they didn't realize how peaceful and soothing and fun it could be. And we all, you know, lose track of different people's realities because we get so intermangled in our own. 
But I found this, you know, incredible that that actually, you know, this the tactile relationship with books, the feeling that you get surrounded by books, almost the soothing pleasure of reading, of just traveling to somewhere else in your imagination while you're still in a place. We forget that. Okay, well, that's a great starting point, traveling to a place in your imagination. Your book, Chronicles of a Cairo Bookseller, came out a little while back. Um, it's your first book. For many people who have never traveled to Cairo or to Egypt, this is their first introduction. To other people like myself, this brings up a lot of memories, projections even, ideas, fears, etc. because I grew up very close to where you grew up. When you conceived of this book, once you had hit the idea, the memoir and telling your story, did you have a particular audience in mind? No, I did my absolute best to eliminate Dear Reader in my head. And actually, every time Dear Reader surfaced, I stopped writing. Um, and I was very lucky because I wrote during lockdown. So, you know, by definition, the world had sort of seemed very distant from me. And, and I sort of detached from, I mean, by, by virtue of the fact that you, we really couldn't go out that much. I mean, lockdown in London was a serious lockdown. And, um, and I could turn my phone off because my children were in the house. So there was this sort of, uh, my whole world got filtered into two rooms. The room that I was in and the room that my children uh, were in. And uh, that actually helped me to just completely isolate. And I was able to negate the presence of anyone or anything. I never thought, what would so-and-so think if they read this? Um, and it you was were very, able to block this out? Oh, my God, yes. And okay. it was very liberating. And I realized, actually, I was having this conversation with a friend. And, and she asked me, if you had written this book in Cairo, would it have been very different? Interesting. And the answer is yes. Mm. Because sitting in London, I felt the urge to describe Cairo. And I felt the urge to explain traffic and to explain street names. Yeah. Okay, I noticed that when I was reading this. This is interesting. The first thing that struck me when I read the book um, was the structure, which is unusual and very interesting. Because the book documents a, 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 an important slice or period in your life, obviously revolving around UN, which is the, the bookshop you started with your sister and some other friends. But the book structure is very particular and to some extent unusual. What drove that? Well, I'm very glad that this book structure eventually found me. <laughs> the structure of the book is uh, basically follows the bookstore. So it's divided uh, every chapter is a section of the bookstore, and it's also a walk through Cairo. Were these real sections in your bookstore or imaginary sections? No, no, they were All absolutely real. real. So if I had gone to the UN, I would find those exact sections. Egypt Essentials is still there, so is art and design, so is self-help. Uh, wonderful. Eventually, I mean, when I first started writing, I was sort of nostalgically writing about these wonderfully funny and, and poignant and occasionally political um, personal anecdotes that happened 
in the bookstore. Yeah, collection um, of little stories. Yeah, and then, well, the thing is, these stories are fun and nice, but they need to find a skeleton that they can hang off of. Um, and I remember the first time um, my agent told me, so what's your narrative arc? And I thought, oh God, I, 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 need, to, I need to Google that. What's a narrative arc? I don't know. And um, What is a narrative arc? You think I'd know now? <laughs> but basically, okay. it's the structure, you know, the, the rise and the fall and, and, you know, the climax of the book. And, and so there was no, I mean, it was a bunch of stories. There was no thread. Why would the reader keep on reading a bunch of anecdotes? You know, we can do that over a drink. You don't Correct. need to buy the book. Correct. So I started to think, I need a guiding principle. I need something. And it just occurred to me that actually, well, Diwen is divided into sections. Could I not possibly replicate the book through these sections? So that, for, that became the guiding principle. So instead, I had... I started putting the sections of Diwen, and then I started listing under them the different stories that would fit under the section. You run the risk of it becoming forced. In other words, I have this little story, you know, or for example, this section has four of them, those now. This one has six. I need to find a fifth one for that, and then it doesn't become as natural or doesn't sort of evolve as smoothly. Not that I felt that with the book. I'm just curious. No, I mean, look, I think it does run that risk always, there is also a process of um, subtracting and adding and moving and, and doing things that sort of cleans it up. I mean, it will be forced in the beginning. It's almost like trying to fit into a pair of trousers that are the wrong size. But then eventually something will settle. I mean, that's a very bad metaphor, but, <laughs> but yeah, it, it's about finding the right fit. Mm. And something does actually settle eventually. I started with putting in the different stories and, and the different um, messages almost and characters and how they would develop and when they would develop under the different um, categories. Chapters, yeah. Chapters. And then at the very end, there was going to be a gender chapter because the gender section for me, which was one shelf in Diwen, I have to say, but it was for me the most important shelf. Um, by the time I got to the end of the book and I thought, oh, I'm now going to write a chapter about gender. I'm very gendered out. There has been a lot here about women and feminism, and th there is a lot. Do I really need to do more? And I decided I didn't. Is that because of your particular personal experience, or that's because that's the lens you use in writing? No, my lens in my life is a feminist one. It's not in my writing. It's just, this is how I see the world. And I think I've, as far back as I can remember, well, no, probably from my teenage years, this is how I've seen the world. And you talk about that a lot, quite a bit in the book. And you talk about even your experiences with your father, the very early stages, and the kind of advice he was giving you, and the juggling almost of some of, of running a business, essentially, which you didn't know at the time, of wanting to uphold those values and, and the way you look at life, but also being pragmatic and practical enough to run a business. Um, and that struggle, to me, was very evident throughout many of the chapters. It's very difficult, you know, theory and practice, it's a very difficult right. um, gap to bridge. And sometimes, you know, I mean, one of the issues, for instance, you hire women. Women 
go on maternity leave. It's, you're not getting a lot of bang for your buck. I mean, that's one of the realities. I mean, the laws that are supposed to protect you also end up penalizing you in the workplace. I mean, these are things that to me are problematic because they're things I grapple with. You know, I mean, men don't get paternity leave. They, no. it's, it's more efficient to hire them, sadly. But we hired a lot of women anyway. And there's an interesting portrayal with a lot of men that seem to have outsized egos. <laughs> but you know what is fascinating to me lately, and I think we, we almost touched on this earlier in the day when we were talking. Women, thanks to feminism, thanks to the patriarchal world that we live in, we have been forced to reformulate ourselves uh, to face many challenges of the most basic levels that men don't even realize. And simply, I mean, I think from the day we're born, we know that this world doesn't belong to us. It's not ours for the taking, and we're probably not very welcome in it. And I think it is for these reasons that we've been forced to reformulate ourselves, to try harder, to work harder. Men haven't had that. And I think today, men are sort of starting to realize that, you know, maybe they do need to reformulate themselves. Maybe they do need to approach the challenges of life in a different way. And they haven't been doing that. No. And women, we've been doing it yeah. individually or through our sisterhoods or through our friends for a very, very long time. From just the basic fact that when women get together and talk or our friends go for a walk, do whatever, exchange their woes, there's already something there that's very empowering. Men don't really necessarily, well, at least some of the men that I've seen my, my in, in my social circles, in my family circles, they don't necessarily do that. And I think they're missing out on a lot of energy and, and power. No, I, I think I agree with that. And obviously, the Me Too movement and some of the other movements that we've seen lately, I think, are forcing this kind of reckoning. But I think change is hard. And for a lot of men, especially from older generations, but from all generations, really, changing ways is unpleasant. It takes you out of your comfort zone. Oh, completely. I think, and I'm including myself, in some cases, many people hoped that you can just sort of go on, you know, without having to address these issues but as it turns out you do have to address them and will be better for it yeah but also i think the problem with change or progress if we want is that it is seldom linear and we'll take a step forward we'll take about five back we'll you know shuffle along hope nobody notices i mean yeah. and, and i feel like i mean with the me too movement how many laws came out of because i i always feel that okay while laws are abstract they're a very important thing to have in the background so that you can refer back to them. In the absence of, you know, a legal foothold, you can't really do very much. I think that's right. When you wrote the book, the book documents a very specific period of your life and revolves around the story of the UN from inception up until the Egyptian Revolution. During that period, of course, a lot of things happened also in your personal life, as anyone's life. You know, you talk about some of these things, including a divorce, including your husband cheating, etc. Were you, did you risk or were you concerned about the risk of some of those more, I'm not going to call them shocking because they're day-to-day -day life, but sort of, let's say, uh, personal elements would hijack uh, the storyline or would be kind of, you know, turn, turn a bit of that tell-all type of... Uh, element bring it into the book or no you know it never occurred to me because even when you asked me the question now and you say this book tells a part of your life i i stopped myself from 
tell, correcting you and saying, actually, it tells a big part of Diwan's life. Correct. Because to me, it is the story of Diwan. Well, they're interlaced. I mean, they're intertwined. But, I mean, unfortunately, you have to put up with my narrative voice guiding you through it. But at the start of this, I wanted to tell the story of this bookshop that I felt had made a change in a society. Correct. And as the writing process wore on, my editor kept telling me, stop hiding. You need to bring more of you into you it. You have to, I mean, you're the narrator. And you're the founder as well. You're not just the narrator, right? But for this book, you are the narrator. So the reader needs to get to know you a bit, have a bit of confidence in you. Um, they have to feel safe. They have to, un they have to feel that you're truthful to them. Do you agree with that? I do. Okay. I mean, I, and I sort of resisted. I, I, I think as the book, you know, as you move from chapter to chapter, I think I share more of what I think or or more of myself. But I'm not interested in the kind of literature, the, the reveal all, the Arab woman exposes, you know, the veiling, the that sort of literature. It had a time and a place. I'm not really interested. And it still has a time and place. Some people like that literature. Some They're people, going for I'm that. Sure That's really, not what you're going for. What I was going for and what I still believe in is for me the, the the liberation was in the offices and streets of my country that's where my liberation is and and this feeling of conquering this public space and I feel every time Diwen expanded it was this idea of claiming part of that public space doing so I mean like you do here in the lighthouse you know you have created a space that at different times of the day is occupied by different people. 100%. When they come in, they use it for different purposes. And it is through this interaction that you create a sense of community. And this is one of the things that for me was liberating. And that it's, it wasn't just that, you know, we were um, trying to reinvigorate a reading culture. Um, it was also the fact that, you know, I remember the amount of friendships that were struck up on you know, and and I know a couple that got engaged in, in on yeah. the in in Diwen's cafe. I also know of several you know relationships that also <laughs> didn't do so well in Diwen's cafe, but it was this idea that you brought people together, you brought ideas together. I was going to ask another question, but because of just your inter your interjection there, I have to bring this up first. Do it, because there's incredible wit throughout the book, and it's sometimes all obvious for everyone to see and sometimes couched and uh, kind of almost hidden. And that's the beauty. It surprises you. Is that a deliberate attempt or is that literally how you are expressing yourself? Because it's, it's, it's fantastic. And it really, in my, in my well, view... Well, you're one of my oldest friends. Well, and you, So you're slightly no, biased. Yes and no. I mean, maybe. But I think the truth of the matter is... My reading of it, and of course it's my very subjective reading of your book, having known you for many years, you're absolutely right, but I found that to be one of the binding glues and almost themes that kind of, you know, cut across chapters, cut across years, cut across. Do you feel that was you or was that something you did deliberately for the book, from your perspective? No, I feel that was me, but also I feel that bits of it in, you know, wit is context-driven. And that's something that we don't um, remember sometimes. That a big part of what we might find funny is when something 
does not exactly fit into the context or it doesn't go as it's supposed to. But there's also a deeper thing here that, that we lose track of. For instance, in the episode of The Naked Chef, which everyone always laughs about. But there's actually a more serious element here, which is that we are lost in cultural translations. Yes. All of us. At the same time, how many times does that actually happen in our day-to-day -day life? And either we take it very personally and badly, or we think it's very funny. So it's just one of these things. And, and in some cases, people have read this as, oh, this is so backward. It's not backward. Has anyone read it as, or have you received feedback as it being a form of political satire? No, I've seen it more as a kind of, I mean, people who have sort of laughed about it. It's sort of like, oh, look at these people who just don't understand. I see. Oh, it's so Coming awful. from that perspective. Yeah, and, and th that's something that actually upsets me because that's not... At all. At all what I intended. I was actually thinking about how much of our lives we do get, just gets lost in translation. When we come back, we'll dig a bit more into how much control we have in general over our creative choices, whether it's a book or a restaurant space, and what Nadia's approach has been post-launch. That's right after this short break. Welcome back. I'm Hesha Montasser, and you're listening to the Lighthouse Conversations with my guest, Nadia Wasif, recorded at our library bar in Yas Bay Waterfront, Abu Dhabi. So when you brought up the lighthouse, when, when every time we open a new space, I have all these ideas about how the space would look, but more importantly, how it will be inhabited. And every day, we, every time we open it, I wind up being surprised in the good and the bad. I mean, not bad, it's all subjective, but ultimately, the room we're in now, I had a certain idea about how it would be inhabited and used. And the reality sometimes turns to be exactly that, but in many cases differently, which is the beauty of something that's ever evolving. Similarly, when you write a book, you have a point of view and you have a certain expectation of what people expect. And then it's out there. It's out, it's done, there's nothing you can do. You start receiving feedback. So from your expectation as a writer and the various reactions you've received in, in form of feedback, whether verbal or written or whatever, how have those two things tacked up? Okay, I need to break this down because yeah. my brain is fried. So no I'm just going to go one by one. Yeah. First of all, when you open a public space, when you take a public space and you have a vision for it and you put it out there into the world, people come and they interact with it and they do of it what they want. Correct. I also have an extra theory for you. Your brain is not fried clearly, Anne. Because you have an extra theory for Yanni. <laughs> you seem okay. No, but so the attention span is miserable. <laughs> um, the space also has its own personality. Yeah. And that is something that you have no control over, that the end user has no control over. I think that that is something we don't take into account. But I do believe that spaces, just like they can have their own aura, their own chi, their own... They have their own personality and... You can, you know, put that bar in that corner there and you can put the chessboard here. But you will be surprised at the end of the day what that interaction and the things that you, the way you've lined things up, it'll go in a completely different. And that's what happened with every single Diwan. 
You know, every time we opened a store and I had a vision of who was going to be shopping in there and what the sales were going to be, never went according to plan. Nothing. That's on the, on the yeah, on the kind of... The space. Space Spaces level. have personalities. And I will add that bookstores have personalities. And when I think of a brand like The Lighthouse and I think of a brand like Diwen, I think of them as people, as characters with ever-evolving personalities. And that is the, the secret sauce. It's not, you know, a logo that someone designed 20 years ago that we just stamp onto everything. It is something that interacts with the world around it and will change in accordance with that world. And on that note, of course, um, I have to just disclose in the interest of honesty that they showed me the new Diwan logo recently. And I was like, no, 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 please don't change it. I can't, I can't, I can't, this, you know. But it's been 20 years. Yeah. It needs to be refreshed. But to my eye, this was a decimation of everything that I hold dear. But sadly, I just had to lump it. Mm. Now, on the book. on the book front, I hoped that people would understand that one of the things that I was trying to do was stay clear of the danger of a single story. I'm tired of uni-narratives. Single narrative. The single narrative, which is perhaps one of our greatest enemies, and that everything, you know, ah, you are a woman, you are a bookseller, and you come from Egypt. So there's a couple of key words that I'm going to attach to, and I'm going to stick you in the box, and we're going to be fine. No, we're not. And... One of the things that I was trying to show is how nuanced relationships were. So, you know, people who worked in Diwan, you know, yes, I mean, there's a, an employment contract governing our relationships. But there was also a sense of family that often trumped that employment contract. There was this idea that people gave their word to one another and they stuck with that word. These are sort of outdated notions, but this was the world that I wanted to try and, and bring into life. Equally, the fact that everything was transformational. Um, people changed, you know, the, the, the cleaning lady who became the cupcake person. The transformational element was brilliant. Can I just say that my relationship with Diwan, that at one point I felt was entirely hopeless and doomed and has since recovered and been resuscitated. That's interesting. Is that fluidity a... Cairo or Egypt mark? It is. It, okay. It's, it's the city well. that self-rejuvenates. It's the city that just goes on and survives. And also, you know, when I think of Lawrence Durrell, for instance, the city is the backdrop. But it's not an active character. It's not a protagonist. Yeah. I feel that Cairo is a protagonist. It's, it, it has an impact on its people, on its characters. It's it demanding. shapes them. It demands them. It threatens them. It challenges them. And they survive. Um, whereas I feel in more um, dated, I'm hesitating to use colonialist, perhaps, literature. No, don't don't, don't, don't city, hesitate. No, I don't like labeling things. I like to give things a little bit but more so nuance. I know, and, I, and you know, we get labeled all the time and we get stuck in boxes, but I'm trying to take the moral high ground here, but let's see. So, <laughs> so I feel I don't have to, okay, I'm gonna try to do the same, let's see how far So, we... But the city is this passive backdrop, you know, and the action is happening to all these very interesting people. But, you know, I feel like in more post-colonial brown people literature, 
the city and the space and the, they're all equal characters and they're all having a go at one another. But then how do you win? Because invariably part of the reaction to your book will be either a type of people that want to put you in a particular box and then will be disappointed that your book does not represent exactly that box, which they have already, by the way, pre-judged and preconceived before even reading one page. Or you have another genre, which could be, you know, Egyptians that have had a particular life and completely missed the point that it's about Diwan and not about them. And then demand of you to, why have you not put in that on January 24, blah, 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 this happened on, uh, I'm not saying January 24, 25 because of Russian, I'm saying a, a, any random date. Or, you know, this happened during that time. In so, this, yeah, so, but you, you, you began, I do see your point, but you began by saying, how do you win? I'm not interested in winning. I'm oh, but I like winning. Power to you, but I, <laughs> I've actually given up on the binary world yeah, of enough. winners and losers. It's nuanced. I'm interested in having a conversation. If anyone would like to join me in this conversation and perhaps we can have a good laugh, learn something new about ourselves and each other, great. Okay, let's forget about winning. But Was wait, wait, wait. Like, I want to mm. go back to one thing. I also have to just say something else that Joseph Conrad, I think it was said that the author only writes half the book. The other half is with the reader. Right. This is, this is a fact. Authorial uh, and, intention and did you find does the reader, not exist. Readership bifurcated in those types of opposing views or binary outcomes, or was it all over the place and so smooth, you know, with all sorts of, you know, reactions to your book? Because I can just in my head imagine now those two types that I've just laid out. Look, I think people and I'm read, curious. people read themselves. Okay. You cannot read outside of your own experience. I mean, yeah, you can read about a different place, but, you know, at the end of the day, you bring a set of experiences 100%. and biases and expectations into a book. I definitely read myself into it. I mean, no, no question about it. The one thing, though, I did try and escape, and I think I dodged that bullet to some extent, was nostalgia. You don't want to traffic in nostalgia. I don't. And I don't want to wax lyrical about... The days long the gone. Days no, no, I'm, this I'm not This house used to be oh, and yeah, yeah. this palace looked like this. But and interestingly, and this is again an extension of, of what we're talking about, that when I go uh, for walks in Zamalek with my two daughters. Zamalek being the neighborhood you grew up in. And the first store. Um, we are walking two very different cities with two very different streets. I am walking in my past footsteps and they are walking in a city that, they don't have that past memory of. 100%. I feel the same way. Um, when I walked in Zamalek for the first time with my son, I definitely was, you know, we, we, we had two completely You were trafficking in nostalgia yes. at that point. I was 100% trafficking in nostalgia. And he was, I don't know what he was trafficking in, but it was two distinct experiences. He was looking for a new set of parents at that point. Possibly, yes. But also the, the gasoline coming at his level, <laughs> a three-year-old. <laughs> it was so stark. He was probably just trying to survive that moment. And I was like, isn't it lovely? But yeah, I mean, it's but hard. But do you know what actually can conjure, at least in, in my family, what has conjured the city? The idea of home, the idea of roots, has now re-emerged in my family through the films and the music. Umm Kalsum, surprisingly, for one of my daughters, is what Cairo sounds like for her. Well, they're exploring their identity. Yes. And, you know, I remember at your daughter's age, at that age, 
also for the first time trying to understand Umm Kalsum, even though you and I grew up in the, in the country, so it's a bit different. But even for us, we were trying to access some of our parents' experiences in due time, when you were yeah. ready for it. But, I mean, the shortest song is 40 minutes. <laughs> for, yeah, there is a challenge there that is, I mean, it goes against everything. I mean, this is, you know, we, we are living TikTok in generation. the TikTok generation. Yeah, how long is the longest TikTok? <laughs> yeah. Not very long. So there we go. But yeah. so Omu Kalsum lives on. Yeah, we have Johnny Depp trials in versus Omu Kalsum 40-minute renditions. So two very different contrasting lives. I'm very happy that I actually I haven't watched any of it. Johnny Depp? I've I mean, some of the TikTok ones you can't escape. They're fantastic. I'm not even on TikTok, but they send them everywhere else. So you don't even have to be on TikTok. You can just be on Instagram and you receive, I mean, some of I'm pretty, I mean, that's a whole different conversation. I'm pretty sure this thing was just made for that. Please watch. I'm not driving traffic towards. It's actually to going <laughs> inside the podcast. This card. <laughs> Absolutely. You Why not? Why not? I mean, it's all part of the conversation. I want to talk a little bit more about your creative process. We had a previous episode before the book was published, which um, our audience can tap back into, when we talked at, at length about your process of writing. I want to, I'm curious about your creative process post-writing. How has that shifted? Um, would you have done anything differently today? Would you think you would do anything differently going forward if you would write a second book, which we hope you do, and the change, if any, that you've observed over the last, let's say, two years? So two things. One is that I'm trying to replicate the perfect storm. Or in my case, it was the perfect peace, in a sense, because it was lockdown. Mm. The world was asleep for a big part of it. And so, unfortunately, because I'm trying to replicate this, I can't. So I need to find a new set of circumstances that will help. So I think I need to go back to my 4 a.m. stint because that used to work very well. And one of the things, sorry to interrupt you, that you've mentioned, which of course didn't occur to me until you said it, for example, that you actually could not travel to Cairo. In other words, you were writing about the UN. Had you gone there during that period, perhaps... It would have been a different book. Exactly. could have been a different book. So that option was not even on the table. No. So can you really replicate this or find a new set of processes? It's, it's finding a new set and sort of mixing different elements, adding an element, removing an element, seeing how, what's the best format for me. Um, I have a notebook. I write things down, but the proper stuff really happens in, in solitude, in quiet, at four o'clock in, in the morning. So I need to go back to that. The other thing that I'm finding very difficult is because now I am firmly aware that there is dear reader and that they are there. And they have a lot to say. And they have a lot to say. I don't know how to block them out so well because I know they're there. And, um, and they have a frame of reference now. They do. So as a first-time writer, part of it, there's this anonymity. Now, if anyone goes with an Adia Wasif short story, new book, article, aha, we reference the first book. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's a tough one in a sense, but I mean, you know, it is what it is, and you just have to work around it. And I do have to block out Dear Reader, and at the end of the day... And this is something I'm, I'm very conscious of doing. When I start thinking, what will someone think of this? I stop. I just stop writing. And you see a pivot or you see in your future 
or you see moving along the same lines. By same lines, I don't mean repeating yourself, by the way. I'm just saying a consistency in terms of thematically, you know, going no, back to I'm, personal experiences. No, no, not at all. Or are I'm, we going for, could you see yourself going to fiction? Totally fiction. Okay. But I'm still obsessed with structure. So I haven't, the thing that is um, frustrating me at the moment is that I have the idea, I'm writing things down, but the structure has still evaded me. And, I'm, and I know that once I find it, because it becomes the organizing principle, it's a thing that you build everything on. And I haven't found it yet. I know it's there, but I just haven't found it. How lonely is that process? It's as lonely as you'd like it to be. How lonely has it been for you? In other words, you've just said that you have a notebook and you're writing a bunch of things in it as and when they come. Is that something you're comfortable sharing? Would you go to one of your daughters, to a friend? No. And say, okay. So no, it, because it's, it's actually... Because it's, it's raw. It's garbage. Sure, it's not garbage. No, no, it makes no sense. I mean, I'll show it to you. It's in my bag. It's but a series of very strange... But maybe if you would read it to someone, it would start making sense, no? No, no, because it's actually shorthand one-liners and, and it's just um, a reminder, you know, note to self, do this. Okay. You know, it's one of those. But um, from my own experience, I sometimes feel like I would get very affected by someone's opinion. And I don't want to do that. I would rather not share and sit and write things down, bin them, rewrite them, do it all over again. Because when you start working with an editor and you go through the editing process and they debate with you and they question your structure, your narrative voice, the pace of your writing, all of that is going to change anyway. You will make so many changes. For I'd rather keep as much of my thinking and my writing, I'd rather just keep it to myself um, because I don't want to be affected by someone else's... Does that make sense? Or it does it sound too It makes a lot of sense. I was just thinking in my mind, for someone who cherishes control, and likes to control this process, which makes a lot of sense. Again, I'm going to go back to I'm this. going to interrupt you. Mm. I'm a rehabilitated control freak. Is it that true? I cherished control. I, get I do not cherish it anymore. It was in the past. Memo not received. For someone who cherished control, how do you deal with the part that is entirely not in your control? You don't. You ignore it. Can you ignore it? I mean, I try. You know, at the end of the day, you can only be you and you can only accept your shortcomings, your successes, you know, and, and uh, you just need to move on, on to the next thing. I mean, there's no, you know, <sighs> books and children. Do we have any control about how our children turn out? We just do our best and we move on. You know, it's up to them. And it's the same thing with books. I mean, I, I wrote this. People will read into it whatever they would like to read into it. I can't, I mean, you know, it would be nice if I could replicate myself and sit on your shoulder while you're reading and whisper in your ear what you should be thinking, but sadly. You seem to have alluded earlier in our conversation uh, to a kind of almost rehabilitation of sorts 
in terms of your relationship with the UN. So what prompted you to reconsider now? Is it that uh, she has grown up? Is it that you have grown up? Is it a combination of the two? No, I'll tell you what it is. I think that, you know, someone once said to me, writing shouldn't be therapy, you know, because your writing or, or a book that we read it shouldn't be a healing process for you. You don't publish that. You know, you write that in your diary and you put it next to your bed and you forget about it. Um, a book has to have some kind of universality. There has to be something meaningful to the reader. For, for a certain period of time, I felt that my relationship with Diwan was hopeless. It was doomed. I had messed this up. It was a failure. And I think the fact that, you know, now Diwan in its second phase with Nihal and Amal and Layel, who Nihal was one of the original founding partners and Amal and Layel both worked at Diwan 10, 15 years ago, and now they are back and they are owners and on the board. Is really? that bittersweet for you? No, it's fantastic. It is fantastic. There's nothing bitter about it. Okay. Diwan still exists. No, I'm done. I mean, okay. for me, that yeah. is... It's a great way of looking at it. it but it's, it's not just easy because it was your baby. Yes, but I mean, you know, it can't stay your baby forever. But we, a lot of us have postpartum. No, you have to let go. And my biggest mistake was I didn't let go when I should have. But anyway... Now you're um, scaring me. No, you have to let go. Okay. Yeah, any, let go. Yeah, Gradually, any, maybe? Yeah, no, 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 no. Cold turkey. Oh, we do God. it cold turkey. Oh, God. That's what the Don't OGs like do. Cold turkey. The OGs go cold turkey. Okay. And in writing this book, I feel like the, the, that was, I mean, it was part of the healing process that I was able to positively chronicle a relationship that had actually, against all odds, against my own expectations, had turned into a very positive one. And, and I would add that it's the same thing with um, my ex-husband at one point. And this is what I think for me was one of the nice positive messages. That at a certain moment in time, you can look at a relationship, whether it's with your bookstore or with your husband, and you can think this is a doomed relationship. There's nowhere to go from here. It's a disaster. And you really feel this has helped you. So it was cathartic in a way. The point is that everything changes. Relationships change. Transformation is salvation. But you salvation. have to allow them to change. It you seems do. like you've created the space to allow for change. Not everybody does that. I want to be very clear. No, I think everybody does. Do. We don't have another choice. No, but I don't think everybody accepts that uh, and creates that space to allow for that change to happen and then to acknowledge change. It seems to me, from what you're telling me, whether it's the UN or your ex-husband, is that you have consciously allowed for that, or maybe subconsciously, no, I think I'm not sure. time does that. You know, time, distance, these are all things that are transformational, and, and Cairo does that. I'm gonna push back. In my view, I've seen a lot of people with time, it doesn't nullify, but it numbs, but to allow for change, you have to actively make space. That, that's been my experience. What if change happens in spite of you, and you're just faced with it? can also be in denial. I mean, you can be, but it's a bit counterproductive. So of all those changes that you've seen, would you call your rehabilitation with UN, where UN is that is still standing, that is thriving in a new Cairo, post-revolution Cairo, is that your biggest achievement? It's not my achievement. It's, it's my partner's achievements. And I think my achievement is being very happy for it because this has happened in a way that wouldn't have been the way that I would have chosen. I think my achievement is accepting that 
this happened That's outside great. of my roadmap. I want to also tell you that I think it takes a lot of self-awareness to be where you are today in terms of how you're speaking about it. In fact, you mentioned this in the book a little bit, but alluded to it in, in, in this conversation today, in our first conversation, this point of owning some of the things that you perceived as your mistakes in terms of perhaps pushing UN too far, in terms of perhaps taking on capital, which then put pressure on all of you partners to expand very fast, etc. But you kind of come full circle on all of these things um, in terms of first accepting and now kind of accepting the mistakes, but also that some of those changes today are probably due to some of the seeds you've planted, but some may not be. And that's very hard. I mean, look, we... There are different times in our lives where it's okay to be an, an egomaniac and to be cocky. Uh, I think there's an age group for that. There's then an age group for humility. And, you know, and it's okay. You just need to fall within the parameters. You don't have to hit them all the time. Interrupt. Was it at the time egomania or it's just ambition? It's also when you're young and a little bit naive, it, it's, I think it's ambition. Maybe I'm, I'm self-correcting here, but... There's a bit of both. Yeah, yes, I, of course, there's a lot of... Um, and I think of it mostly as raw ambition. A little stupid. A I little cocky. Can we do cocky and cocky. ambition? Okay. But the cocky also comes with that you don't have any scars. Not yet. Yeah, that's my point. So, of course, I'm cocky at 21 because, frankly, the world is my oyster and I yes. think it's going to continue like that forever. Yes. And I'm going to keep my hair for the next 30 years. Turns out you don't keep your hair. <laughs> that is not my biggest issue, but I wanted to put that in there. Anyway. Okay, no, thank you for sharing. It's always <laughs> lovely. Uh, no, I, I just think that it's important to me, at least, where's the success? Diwen is still around. This is a bookstore that has been there for 20 years that has impacted people's lives in a positive way. There are people who work inside it that this is a part of their family. And, and having said that, there are also people who feel that it's their family, but they fight with their family every day. This is perfectly normal. At the end of the day, things went wrong, but everything, I, I firmly believe that everything went as it should. Our job is to just accept. I think that's very wise. Um, I'm shocking you now. You're not used to this. No, I'm, not, I'm not used to it at all. And I feel it's a fantastic note to end because I feel like you've shocked me enough. But I have one last question. Um, any advice for first-time writers that might be listening to us? Go with it. Don't fight it. Just go with it. That's great. Nadia, this has been a pleasure. Congratulations on your success. We are so proud to have this book everywhere at the Lighthouse. All the Lighthouses we have, it's online. Where can people find you that may want to, obviously we'll put this in the show notes, but might read the book and want to converse or review it or give feedback. What's the good place to do that? I'm on Instagram at Nadia the Bibliophile. Great. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on the Lighthouse Conversations with me, Hasha Montasser. We're produced by Chirag Desai, and our content director is Farha Sharif. If you've enjoyed this episode, please follow us on your favorite podcast player so you don't miss any upcoming episodes. Also, feel free to browse our extensive collection of previous episodes, which you can find on any of your podcast players, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google. Also, you can go to our website, www.thelighthouse.ae slash podcast to find all the previous episodes. You can find us on Instagram at thelighthouse underscore AE 
or send us an email at connect at thelighthouse.ee with any comments you may have. And please share a link with your friends if you've enjoyed this episode. We'll see you again in two weeks.